Good morning. If you would, open to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And today we are going to talk about the song, about the topic of that song, Amazing Grace. The Amazing Grace of God. What, a, what an amazing song, is it not? Um, one, of the, one of the songs probably we don't even need the words in front of us to sing. We, most of us have it all memorized. Um, we hear that tune so often, the, the tune of Amazing Grace. It is uh, every year you will see different uh, studies and different things where they try to pick you know, the po- most popular songs of the year, the ones that are most played in churches. And guess which one is usually at the top of that chart? Amazing Grace. What a powerful hymn, what a powerful song that we have, that we sing of the grace of God. The the background of that song is just as powerful as the song itself. If you know anything of the man who wrote that song, his name is John Newton. John Newton wrote that song in approximately 1779. Newton was a man who knew of God's grace. He was a man that when you said the word grace, when he thought about the word grace, the first word that came to his mind was amazing. The second phrase that came to his mind is how sweet the sound. And the third thing that came to his mind is that it saved a wretch like me. John Newton was raised in, a, in, in somewhat of a godly home. His mother was a godly woman. His father was, uh, was, was a shipman. He was in the slave trade. And Newton, was he, uh, when he was a young man, his mother died and he came under his father's care. He found himself as a, as a young man entering into the Navy. He writes about many of his mistakes. He was, he was someone who had a, a, a path kind of laid out for him because his father was, was well known and well regarded, but Newton made lots of boneheaded mistakes. Newton walked away from his faith. He became the captain of a slave ship himself. At one point, John Newton was actually the slave of a slave, if you could imagine such a thing. He writes in great detail of how he became against God, how he cursed God, how he blasphemed, how he loved sin and hated God. And yet, one day at sea, in the midst of a great terrible storm where Newton was all but sure that he would die. He was literally tied himself to the boat. God opened his eyes to that amazing grace. Uh, It's a powerful testimony. If you ever get an opportunity to read about or to watch a movie about John Newton, I would 
advise you to do so. It is a, a powerful reminder of God's grace. And the man who wrote this amazing song, this song that we know so well, think about it, from, from funerals to celebrations, amazing grace is sung all over. It's, it's our most recognizable hymn by far. In fact, even, even non-Christians, even people outside of Christian music sing amazing grace. Right? We've all heard the Elvis Presley Amazing Grace, right? Alan Jackson, Mariah Carey. The list goes on and on and on. There's something, not just about the words of the song, not just about the, the melody of the song, not just about the familiarity about the song, but there's something about the power of grace that is articulated in that song. The power of grace, the power of a message that we who do not deserve God's love, do not deserve God's favor, have been given God's favor. Oh, the power of grace. What a powerful, what an amazing word that is. Grace is the second of the foundations that we're going to look at over these next few weeks as we join with many Protestants around the world leaning up to the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And again, as I explained last week, we're not going to go into a lot of history and the uh, articulation of, of these things in, in historical theology. We've done that before. I find it very interesting and important. But I want us to think about today that this is a foundation upon which we stand on the idea and the concept that salvation is by grace, not by works, not by our own doing, not by our own merit. It is something that we did not deserve that God did for us. How amazing that grace is. That grace, that amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, that saved a wretch like you, that stands available to save any who would come and would submit to Christ and would receive the grace that God gives. How amazing that is. And so, when I hear of grace, when I think of grace, I can't help in my heart but to go to this amazing passage that we find in Ephesians chapter 2, whereby Paul wraps it up in verse 8. The thrust of it is this. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast if we are to be saved, if we are to receive salvation, if we are to be redeemed for the sin that we've done, it has to be because God has done so. That's the message of grace. Would you look with me at the text? We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Let me read for you from the Word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses in sin in which, in once you, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body 
and the mind, <clears throat> in the, the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God. That was the bad news. Here comes the good news. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which He loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Would you pray with me this morning? Oh, Father, we are overwhelmed when we stop and we contemplate the idea of grace. Father, that You have loved us with such a great love, that You have provided for us that which we could not provide for ourselves. You intervened for us, yet while we were against You, You loved us, You saved us, You worked in us that we may come to Your grace. And Father, that grace is not just an initial grace, but it continues day by day as You grace us with more and more, as You continue to forgive us, as You continue to grow grow us, as You continue to work in our life. Oh, Father, that we would understand grace. Oh, how it would change us. How it would change us from sin. How it would change us and motivate us for what you have called us to do. We thank you for your salvation. Father, I pray now that you would use my feeble attempt to explain Your Word. And through the power of Your Spirit, would You be at work? Would You be doing that which You can only do? Awaken our hearts to Your grace. Call us unto Your Son for salvation. Father, may we trust in You more from hearing Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is... An incredible passage in its context. Looking here through verses 1 through 10, after the beginning of chapter 1 of Ephesians, which is just powerful in itself, um, Ephesians chapter 1 contains the longest sentence in the Bible. There's one huge sentence. Paul gets so excited writing about what God has done in Christ that he just breaks all the rules of grammar. Those of you who who are, are English grammar people, you'll, you'll hate reading through it. I, I am known, my wife accuses me often, I can master the comma and tying sentences together so that I have these huge sentences. Paul outdoes even me. He gets so excited thinking about what God has done in Christ for us. 
Then he moves to apply it in chapter 2 to show the, the condition that we were in and that we needed God and God did act by His grace. What a wonderful word that is to us. If you look here, the first thing that we can see is our situation requires grace. Our sinful situation, the situation in which we find ourselves here in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. I just taught on Acts chapter 2 this morning, so it's going to slip out at some point, I know. But in Ephesians chapter 2, he begins with the situation that we, uh, that we find ourselves in, this spiritual situation that we need grace. It requires grace for salvation. If we are to be saved, it's not because we are pursuing it, seeking it, can do it on our own. In fact, just the opposite is true from what we find in this text. The first thing that he says is about our condition is that we are helpless. We are helpless. There's two ideas here. The first is that, that he says that our situation is so bad because we are dead. Dead people don't help themselves. Do we expect that? That's the impact that Paul wants to make. He, he uses this figure, he uses this illustration that we would understand that we need God's grace. Why? Because of our sin. It says you were dead in the trespasses and sin you spiritually are not looking for christ you spiritually are not trying to save yourself you spiritually are not feeling guilt and condemnation and and saying oh my i have offended god on our own without the intervention of god without god's grace coming in without his word coming into our life we delight in our own pleasures. We delight in our own sins. And that's why Paul writes here and says, Be, because of this sin, you have become spiritually dead to the things of God. You have become spiritually dead to the grace of God. Oh, read Romans chapter 1 and see what Paul writes about all of man, how, how things of God could be clearly seen, and yet we rejected them for our own pleasures and our own selfishness. We are spiritually dead. God must act. Grace requires God's unmerited favor because we cannot earn this grace. We're dead. The second figure that he gives here is the figure of slavery. He gives the figure of slavery. Look at verses 2 and the beginning of verse 3. He says that we were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Paul writes here to describe uh, that we need grace. Our situation requires grace because we are uh, slaves to sin. It is the master over us. 
We find ourselves without Christ. We find ourselves without God's grace intervening and working in our life that we will follow this culture. We will follow this world. And though we may not even understand it, though we may not fully comprehend that it's the influence we're following, the lead that Satan has given to this culture. The prince of the power of the air, as Paul writes about here, of whom we all participated. Friends, you cannot come to salvation in Christ until you first recognize your sinfulness without Him. You cannot come and ask for forgiveness if you don't believe there's anything that you should be forgiven of. You say, oh, well, you're just trying to make me feel guilty. No, I'm trying to awaken you to your situation. Because if you don't see yourself in need of saving, you won't cry out for salvation. Right? If you think all is well, then you don't need a Savior. But when you recognize and you see your situation, when you realize your helplessness, when you realize that you're in slavery to sin, when you realize the things that I don't want to do, it has this power over me and I do them and I don't understand it. You're not a victim, but you do find yourself within this realm and you need help. You need grace. You need God to act. The second thing, Paul writes and says that we're helpless, that we are dead, that we are slaves. He writes and says that the situation is, is hopeless. He says, and we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. You see, we don't, we're not born innocent, right? We, we see a little baby and we look at it and we go, oh, how cute. Sometimes we might say how innocent the, the, the baby looks. And there's a sense in which I understand what we're saying, but from a theological perspective, sin has entered into mankind so that even as we are born, we are sinners by nature, We need God's wrath. We need God's grace from day one. From day one, we need the grace of God in our life. It's not as though you're born and you're innocent and and then you lose that and you've got to gain it back. That's not the the status in which is happening. What happens is is we need God's grace from our first breath, from the moment of conception, the moment of life. It's an important fact. We're going to celebrate Christmas soon. I'm still wrapping my head around that one too. But at Christmas, we are, we are, (laughs) Christmas is all about this fact. Okay? Jesus was born of the virgin, not by the, through the, through the seed of man, right? Do you understand the importance of that? Jesus did not share our sinful nature from birth. That's what Christmas is all about. And Paul writes to remind us here that that this hopelessness, that that we need God's grace, even even from our birth, we are are by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Oh, man does not need more education. The, The problem of man is not social woes. 
The overarching problem of man is not poverty. All of these are, are issues and all of these are things that are worthy to pursue. But we must realize that the overarching problem and issue with man is that he was born with a nature of sin and follows in that sin. What we all need, all mankind, is God's grace. Is the gospel of Jesus Christ to be at work in our life. Without which, as Paul writes, we are hopeless. We are hopeless. It says that we are um, children, we are by nature children of wrath. This is a tough statement. What does this wrath mean? This wrath means that without God's grace, without accepting and trusting in Jesus Christ, the one in whom which we have offended is against us. Paul will write about this in Romans chapter 5, saying at one time we were at enmity with God. Not anonymity with God. <laughs> enmity. Kind of a funny word, but it means that we were uh, God's enemies. You might not realize it. You might not think about it. But if, you're not, if you haven't received the grace of God you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, you find yourself against God. Go out tonight and look at the sky. See the immense stars. Think about the uh, complexity of what God has created. I'm studying right now on on cognitive neurology, how we, how we understand and think. And what's amazing is, is we have no idea how we think. <laughs> we still have no idea how the brain really works. What, is it, what does it mean that you might remember some of these words that I'm saying tomorrow? How did you do that? How did you take fatty cells and neurons and electrical charges and turn that into a memory? It's an amazing thing, the complexity of what God can do. All that power is either for you if you've received His grace or against you if you fall under His wrath. What a situation we find ourselves. Could you imagine if Paul just stopped right here? All right, here's the deal. You are dead to spiritual things. You are a slave to sin, so you're going to do what it says. And you, like everybody else you know, were born into this by your nature, and you're under God's wrath. Anybody want to go to the fellowship hall and eat some chicken? <laughs> Could you imagine if that was the end? That's, a, that's a, a, a pretty disparaging picture of humanity. It's a pretty disparaging picture of where we are, of what the future holds, of, of what we must do. We are hopeless. We need something to happen for us. That's the power of grace. Paul doesn't leave it there. The second thing that we see in our text is our salvation reveals God's grace. God's grace, what He has done, His favor, His work is revealed because of the situation that we find ourselves in. Begin looking at, at verse 4. Oh, I've heard some 
powerful, amazing sermons on two words. But God. But God. Oh, man. I've heard, I've heard some incredible sermons from older saints to drive home this point. But God. Oh, the condition that Paul just said that you're in. Oh, the condition that he's going to put you in. And it all hinges on this, these two little words, but God. But God. We need God's grace. We need God to work. We are, find ourselves in a condition where we are helpless, we're hopeless, we're slaves. But God. What a precious word. But God for His love. Not His obligation. Not in a way where He says, oh man, I created this and they went all messed up and I don't know what to do. No, it says, because He loved us with such a great love. Not just humanity, but us, you. God loves you. Do you see that? Do you recognize that? That's what grace teaches us. That's what grace reveals to us. But God. So our salvation reveals God's grace. How does salvation reveal God's grace? Well, we must remember, first of all, that salvation in itself is a rescue. That word, sozo, means to be rescued. We speak of salvation so flippantly sometimes. I'm saved. I'm a, I'm a saved person. We're not fully saved yet, right? We're, we're secure in our salvation. We know that it's happening, but God is still working our salvation so that that day when you breathe your last here and you find yourself before the throne of God, your soul is secure. The wrath of God has been propitiated. It has been placed somewhere else upon Jesus Christ. That is the moment when you fully realize, I'm saved! My sin, that which I deserved, was put on Christ. And God saved me by His grace, through His grace, in what He has done for me. Don't neglect the importance of that word, saved. Saved. Do you see, to, to understand that we're saved, we have to understand that we are in danger. That's what Paul writes here and says. He says, look at your situation. Look where you're headed. Look at the outcome of this. But God. But God. By grace, you have been saved. Oh, that word grace. We know that word. We understand. If I were to ask you what that word means, most of you would say unmerited favor. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace comes to us not because we deserve it, not because we earn it. Grace comes to us not because of any obligation or coercion. Grace comes to us because God looks upon us. He looks upon our salvation and He has mercy, He has pity, He has love, and He acts. There's no way that we could earn it. If we could earn it, it's not grace, it's pay. Right? If I go to work and at the end of the day I receive a paycheck, that is my earnings. 
What Paul writes to say, the meaning of grace. Oh, that amazing grace that God would work on our behalf, that God would save us, that God would love us, that God would act on our part, that He would sacrifice His Son for us. It's not earned. It's only received. Oh, grace. Amazing grace. Salvation is a rescue, for you have been saved by grace. Salvation is also a resurrection. Paul describes what this means that God has done. He says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. The old word for this was quickened. He quickened us. He made us alive. So we were dead. We were spiritually dead. We were a dead man to the things of God, to the life of God, to the word of God, to the people of God. We had no desire for those things. We were not pursuing those things. But God, by His grace, makes us alive. As Jesus called out to the tomb and said, Lazarus, awake. So God calls to our hearts and says, awake. Here is my love. Here is my grace. We are raised up. God also, it says, seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, this is an interesting phrase. We know from the rest of the Bible and other passages where this idea of Christ being seated, particularly in Romans, what it signifies is the finality of what has been done. Jesus Christ sits before the throne of God and he sits because the work is done. What he accomplished on salvation is complete. There's no need for Jesus to come back and to be re-sacrificed. There's no need for Jesus to come back and to do something that he didn't fully completely do. He can sit on the throne before God. He can sit next to him. He sits. Why? Because it has been accomplished. It has been finished. And so our salvation by the grace of God is finished. It is accomplished because God has made it where we can sit with Christ there's nothing you add to it let me say that again there is nothing you add to it if you did you would be earning your salvation it wouldn't be grace now I counsel with people all the time that have difficulties in comprehending this have difficulties in, in understanding this, this finality of grace in Jesus Christ alone. And they think, well, if I give more, I, I, then, I'll, then, I'll, then I'll be saved more. If I serve more, then I'll be saved more. If I read the Bible more, then I'll be saved more. If I help others more, then I'll be saved more. Friends, you can't be saved any more than the moment you were when Jesus calls you and you receive the grace of God. You are seated with Christ. Now, does obedience matter? Yeah. Look at what the passage says. It says that He saved us. Why? To do the works in which He created us to walk in. 
So there is a life of obedience. There are things in which we should do. Our heart has been changed. Our citizenship has been transferred. We should desire to do those things, to be obedient to those things, to live out recognizing the grace that was given to me. Friends, if you found yourself completely in debt, I mean, no income, they're going to take everything tomorrow. And somebody was to come in and say, you know what? I'm going to take care of this for you. Would you rejoice in that person? Would you have genuine joy about that? Oh, how much more God has done for us. In His grace, it should motivate us to love Him, to live for Him. The, the, the third thing that we see, salvation. So uh, salva- we are saved. Salvation is a rescue. It is a resurrection. Salvation is a recreation even. Paul writes here in verse 10 and says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. This idea of workmanship is a very interesting word. The idea is that of an artist, right? I do a lot of woodworking. I built uh, our, our kitchen table. It took like six years. That's another story. But it's beautiful. It really is. It's something I'm very proud of. You ever come to our home? We have a we have a, a gorgeous kitchen table, and, and I'm proud to look at it and say that is my workmanship. That is my masterpiece. That is that is something that I labored over and I created and I put together and I I, I went through three versions of it, <laughs> and here it is. And so Paul says, God looks upon you if you are in Jesus Christ. If you have received His grace, if you have welcomed the grace of God into your life and begun to live for Him and be shaped by Him, that God would look at you and say, we are His workmanship. What a powerful, wonderful thing grace is in our life. That it could take something that looks worthless, that's against God, that has nothing to do for Him, that is full of sin. I don't care what you've done in your past. God can take your past and He can create in you a new future. He can take that which you've done and forgive you and make you work for Him. Do great and wonderful things for Him. He can take those experiences that pulled you away and use them for His glory. That's the power of His grace. It says we have to walk in it. Are you ready, willing? Are you walking in that which He has created for you? The third thing is sinners, we receive grace. This is how grace is come, is grace is received. Verse 5, even, it's amazing here, even while we were dead in our trespasses, He made us come together, made alive together with Christ. So the point is, is that you don't receive grace once you've cleaned up your life. You don't receive grace once you've got everything going well. You don't re- receive grace once you've done enough good things to outweigh the bad things. You don't receive grace when you've given enough money to the church. We'll, we'll, we'll still take checks, though. We don't receive grace when we've, when we've worked enough, hard enough, pure enough, when we've stopped, whatever it is. 
cursing, smoky, whatever in your mind is that thing that you think, this keeps me from God. If I fix this and I'll be to God, that's not what grace is. Grace is saying that I am a sinner and God has opened up to me His salvation and I want to take hold of that. That's grace. We receive grace through faith. We do not earn grace. He writes here and he says in verse 9, it is not by works so that no one can boast. If it, was, if it was by works, we could say, you know what? I did all this good stuff. I gave this a man. I changed my life. And here I am. I finally got there. God, thank you for making a system where I could rise above all these other poor slackers. I wanted to say schmucks, but it wasn't coming up. Because look at me, I did it. Friends, that's not grace. And we laugh at it. But how often do we feel inadequate and think I'm not good enough? If I only did this, God would love me more if this was going on. Friends, here's something. God is not a, a father figure that you have to approve, get his approval by doing good things. It says here that God loved you even while you were a sinner, when you were completely against him, dead in your trespasses, a slave to sin, dead to him, an object of his wrath. It was in that moment that he loved you. If you know the love of God, if you know the grace of God, don't get caught in this trap that you have to earn it. Because it can't be earned. It can only be received. Walk in that grace through faith. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's, it's through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That is not your own working. Salvation comes to us while we are sinners. This is the message for everyone. Every place. Like the rest of of creation it said we were children of wrath we need the grace of god we need to embrace the grace of god we need the grace of god in our life this makes our mission pretty clear for one we need to accept and to know but if we don't know it and we know others in our community and in our families and in our workplaces that need the grace of god then that's the message in which we take it's not just clean up your life. It's not have good morals. It is accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. That God has provided a way for you to escape your sin, to be forgiven of the things that you've done. And it's only through Jesus. It only comes through grace. And it only comes through faith. Would you trust in Him? That's the message. And, and here's the amazing thing. We're not, we don't have to sell a 12-step program. It says that God is the one working grace through His Spirit. Yeah, how, did, how did God create everything? He created it through His Word and, and by the power of His Spirit. That, that's how He creates spiritual life as well. Our job is to share the message. It makes it so much easier when we think about leading others to Jesus. God is active in this. God is a part of this. God is opening hearts. He is awakening the dead. And He works through us, through our sharing of the message of the gospel. 
takes all the pressure off of you, right? Would we be willing to understand grace so much? To have such a, a concept and an idea of grace, amazing grace, that we would realize our need for it and the need for everyone else to receive it. Grace, grace, God's grace, greater than all of our sins. Oh, the wonderful songs that we sing of God's grace. I pray that after this morning they would resonate more and more with you. That the depth and the, the idea of grace and the wonder of grace would help us to recognize how truly amazing it is, how sweet the sound is, that God would save a wretch like me.